My friends, I'm uh, deeply humbled by the opportunity to speak for a third time before the most important legislative body in the world, the U.S. Congress. I want to thank you all for being here today. I know that uh, my speech has been the subject of much controversy. I deeply regret that some perceive my being here as political. That was never my intention. I want to thank you, Democrats and Republicans, for your common support for Israel, year after year, decade after decade. of War, where each week, your host, John Little, takes a deep dive into the national security, intelligence, and technology stories that are shaping our world. All right, welcome to Covert Contact, episode 104. I'm your host, John Little. Uh, you recognize that voice leading in. Of course, that was the Israeli prime minister in 2015 uh, addressing Congress. And uh, my guest today has a tremendous amount of insight into the Israeli-U.S. relationship. Uh, he was foreign policy advisor to Ehud Barak, political advisor to Shimon Peres, and he was chief of staff to four foreign ministers. Uh, that's an incredible background for such a <laughs> relatively young man. You would think he'd be 90 years old to have, uh, have that kind of uh, <laughs> uh, background in politics and diplomacy, but... Um, uh, Elon Pincus was also the general consul of, uh, of Israel in New York City. Uh, Elon, welcome to Covert Contact. Thank you, John. Pleasure and uh, um, uh, privilege to be with you. I'm honored to have you on the show, and, and um, there's a tremendous amount we can talk about. Uh, we're going to focus, I think, primarily on the relationship between Israel and the United States, and it's okay. sort of not something that's top of mind right now, but it's always... Um, always important and uh, always ends up being top of mind uh, eventually in these cycles that we go through. But uh, just quickly, your background, you're a, you're a relatively young man and you're, you're, it just, it seems like a, an, an incredibly um, um, impressive list of achievements across multiple governments. By the way, it wasn't because I was that good, John. It was because they, they tend to change and uh, get reelected or, or deposed. <laughs> Uh, frequently, uh, uh, the, the 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 bio, the CV may indicate that I'm older than I am, but then again, I'm not that young. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> I would imagine, John, that in the next uh, year or so, I'll have to make up my mind: do I, you know, do I really want to continue on with this um, uh, inside the water, outside the water, touching the water, testing the water politics, or am I done with it? I, honestly. Um, I haven't made up my mind yet. I, I still, you know, I still want to play for the New York Giants. I mean, if, it's, if that's <laughs> at all possible, if they're listening, this is what I want to do. Give me a call. Minimum wage. <laughs> Just the love of the game, right? Absolutely. Uh, right as we start off, what's your what's your take on 
sort of the state of the two unions as we as we uh, sit right now. Um, uh, you know, the the relationship's well, always strong, but um, right. what are you thinking about? Are you referring to the relationship or to the relative state of both unions or, or both uh, yeah. uh, democracies? Uh, we'll get into the relative state of both democracies later, but what's your 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 take on the relationship? Well, you know, if, if you're an Israeli and an American who doesn't like their government, uh, you tend to think uh, that both countries are in uh, some dire straits, that both are going nowhere, that both are in a, on a bad trajectory, that both are governed by um, uh, narcissistic uh, autocrats or authoritarian leaders. If you happen to support either or both Mr. Netanyahu and Mr. Trump, then you'd say that this is an exaggeration, but that both countries are doing well that things needed to be amended, that, that, that both countries face a set of problems that they haven't dealt with adequately before that. But I do see, I have to tell you, uh, I'm not going to stay neutral for long in this conversation. <laughs> I, 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 do, <laughs> I, I do think that both countries are on the precipice of, of changing uh, the direction or changing the trajectory in which uh, uh, they are on. Um, to a play to a different place. Some may like it, some may may, may support it, but it, it, it's going in a different direction. It may it may take time in Israel. It may happen in November or in January um, when a new administration, if a new administration, is inaugurated in the U.S. But I think that both countries have governments that are essentially fight. I mean, with all those differences, and there are huge differences in the circumstances and, and, and problems that, that both countries respectively face. Right. But I think that both Mr. Trump and Mr. Netanyahu are, and, 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 and their supporters and, and voters um, are fighting a rear guard uh, battle. They're, they're losing the war. They're winning battles here and there, but they're losing the war. And they're, they're you know, in, 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 in their panic, they're dragging everyone with them. Yeah, I mean, you do have sort of similar status on both sides where you have like far right governments. Yes, you do. And then you have this. Uh, more in style than in substance, but yes. Correct. correct. Uh, but then you have a swelling, you know, I don't know. What's the status of the left um, or uh, even the left and center um, in in Israel? Well, is it, is uh, it? it doesn't exist uh, uh, right now. Yeah. Politically, I mean, the sentiment is there. The voters are there. The electorate is is, is ready. At least fifty percent of it. Uh, the leadership is conspicuously missing. Um, the left here, as, as as by the way, have been has been claimed for years about Democrats in the U.S., but it's even more acute here. Uh, it's like a circular um, firing squad, right? Uh, they, they, they tend to kill each other instead of fighting the, the war. And the right wing in this country, and to a degree in the U.S., is much more target-oriented, much more disciplined, was at least, um, and knows what it needs to do to get things done. Um, I, I, I reiterate what I said a moment ago. I think that's about to change. It's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. But I think that trends in both societies, and I qualify this again, John, um, uh, we are a different society facing different problems, facing uh, uh, or built uh, structures differently domestically, but both societies are changing 
in a way that is uh, incompatible with the current leadership, both Mr. Trump in the U.S. and Mr. Netanyahu here in Israel. Yeah, the center and the left in Israel always had an uphill battle with, you know, I think with, um, especially with the level of violence that was occurring, right? That tends to sort of radicalize and, and push your society to the right. And so you can understand why there's a very strong uh, far right element in Israel. I mean, it makes perfect sense. Um, but you know that we've also seen um, that diminish to some extent, um, or at least maybe it's being uh, managed more effectively is, do you, do you see room? Um, do, do you see this, um, this far right's grip on power dissolving or no, no, no? I don't, I don't. Um, the vote for the right wing, which by the way is a minority, not a majority, has a plurality in the Knesset, in the parliament, um, but it does not enjoy a clear majority. But the plurality that, that it has uh, for some time now is, is more or less a confluence of, of several factors. Some are ethnic, um, 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 Sephardic, Middle Eastern Jews versus European Jews, left versus right, rich versus more big cities versus smaller cities, um, and, 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 and a basic socioeconomic cultural uh, divide. Um, when it comes to actual policy, even the, 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 the majority of, of right-wing voters will tell you that, that the status quo that exists with the, with the Palestinians is not sustainable in the long run. Uh, they do not support, they do not advocate annexation of, of, of large swaths of, of, of Palestinian territory, nor the one-state, so-called one-state uh, model, i.e. an Israeli-Palestinian state, uh, with all that that entails. Um, on the other hand, they have their, by the way, legitimate reservations about the, um, the diplomatic or the peace process-related uh, policies of the left wing or the center-left. And that they have little trust in the Palestinians, little trust in the um, in, in in the goodwill and good intentions of the other side. They still feel that that this is what Prime Minister Barak, former Prime Minister Barak, called "we're living in a villa in the middle of a jungle, of a dangerous jungle." They have that that sense. And and um, since you know demography, Palestinian Jewish demography is not something that you think of every day or that threatens your quality of life every day. People sort of put it off, you know, they, they kick the can down the road um, and they don't think about it. And they vote right wing for the, for the reasons I mentioned before, the socioeconomic, cultural uh, reasons. Um, so in, in, in that respect, the political spectrum here represent, does not represent, excuse me, does not represent the sentiment. The problem with the left wing of the center left is that it shows an unsellable or unmarketable vision of peace. <laughs> um, and that's where we are today. Which is a challenge that moderates um, sort of have everywhere too, right? Like it, it's not, that is true. it is that's not tremendously true. appealing. <laughs> you know, let's no, it's, it's, it's not appealing, but, but you know, you know what? It's um, look, Liberalism, not in the not in the liberal American political right. context, but liberalism in general, and and a moderate centrist policy vis-a-vis -vis, never had strong selling points. It's always easy, comfortable, or comfort zone, and it, it constitutes the comfort comfort zone to go to the uh, why not 
right. why not do this and why we shouldn't do this and why we should never agree to this. It's, it's, it's soothing. It's, it's nice. It's, it's reinforcing. It's empowering. It's just not smart. Yeah, nobody wants to roll up their sleeves and do the hard work. It might require sacrifice um, and uh, a lot of deep thought and and even I agree. thinking deeply about uh, the other person's perspective, uh, especially when uh, you know you come out of of um, of such a long period of you know violence and and terrorism and all that stuff. It just really seriously yeah. undermines that that potential, and that just gets down to human nature. It's understandable. You know, one of the yep. things that I notice um, observing, you know, far right elements here, and I'm, I'm not even necessarily talking about, well, there are folks that are in power, but uh, also socially, is that there, there's, in, especially in the past few years, I've seen increasing connectivity between Israel and, and really far right elements here. And, and obviously those extremely far right elements express uh openly and effusively express like their love of israel um right somewhat confusingly while sometimes also um seemingly being anti-semitic uh there's a a a weird social phenomenon there that we won't necessarily have to get into do you see that and are you concerned about the long-term implications of that for for both countries i'm I'm very um yeah but let's let's for the benefit of, of, of our listeners, let's break this down. Um, we're not talking about Israeli uh, long-standing Israeli policy. We're talking particularly and specifically about Mr. Netanyahu. He has aligned himself with right-wing elements in the U.S. Some were perfectly legitimate, like the neocons at the time, or uh, elements in the Republican Party. You may agree or disagree with them. Yeah, I agree. We're not talking about those folks. We're talking about elements okay. that are fringier but, than that. But, Right now, or in the last several years, uh, there have been three groups with which the Israeli government under Netanyahu aligned itself with, to varying degrees. One was one is the evangelical Christian, whose love for Israel and respect for Israel is is undebatable. Yet the motivation underlining it is problematic. Um, it's theological. It's religious. Again, perfectly legitimate, but it's it's. It's not about the security of Israel. It's about some, some evangelical theological dream about Armageddon and the second coming of Christ. Things that I respect if you believe in that, but things that are not a good recipe for foreign policy. A second group would be the far right wing of the Republican Party, which includes elements that are white supremacists uh, motivated by anti-Islamic, anti-Muslim sentiments which they translate into pro-Israel, which, which, which in the end, John, is essentially um, um, anti-Semitic Israel lovers. Correct. Okay? Uh, something that, that seems unfathomable or irreconcilable, <laughs> but they exist. The third element are, are right-wing uh, American Jews. Now, let's not forget, again, this is the benefit for, for whomever is listening to us or will listen to, will listen to us and doesn't know the fact American Jews have consistently voted for Democrats since the 60s. Uh, the average in presidential election, uh, elections is 7%, 7-0% for the Democrats. The, the, the average congressional election is closer to 80%. Barack Obama received twice, 72 and 73% respectively, of the Jewish vote. I think that Joe Biden in, in November will get in excess of, of 75%. 
And that still leaves 20, 25% of American Jews who are right wing. So Israel, under Netanyahu, uh, aligned itself with the evangelicals, with the 20% right wing American Jews, and with those fringe groups that, that have become noisy and, and, and omnipresent in, in the last few years of, of supremacists and neo, neo-Nazis and, and, and nationalists and, and Confederate flag waving. Um, um, Muslim-hating uh, Americans, um, you know, along the lines of what your president said, there are good people on both sides, fine people on both sides. I see that as a danger um, in the long run because of two two reasons. One, a deep one, a social cultural reason, and one is political. The social reason or the social cultural reason is that Israel has become. A, an ally of the U.S. since the 60s, since, since the last, the late 60s, I'm sorry, and particularly in the mid, since the mid 70s, and and um, Israel has become a um, a pro-Israeli sentiment in both the Israeli government, I'm, I'm sorry, in both the U.S. government and the U.S. Congress has become a, a thing of uh, uh, routine and nature. I mean, the, the, the default is being pro-Israeli. The second political element is that Israel always, always enjoyed bipartisan support, meaning that Israel was never, uh, Israel never inserted itself into American politics. Israel never allowed itself to become a wedge issue. And all this until the last five, six years, when under Mr. Netanyahu, it became both. It's been meddling in American politics ever since, in fact, the 2012 election. And it and and you at the outset of this program you uh, played a recording of Mr. Netanyahu speaking to Congress in March 2015 behind the back of an incumbent president Barack Obama against the uh, Iran the so-called JCPOA right. the Iran nuclear deal commonly referred to and Israel has become um, and the Republicans were quick to capitalize on that and have tried ever since to make Israel a wedge issue. We support Israel, Democrats don't. We love Israel, Democrats don't. American Jews don't actually love Israel, said President Trump just the other day in Long Branch, New Jersey, in a fundraiser just three days ago. Um, that's ridiculous. And it's hurting Israel in the long term, whether Mr. Trump wins re-election or whether Mr. Biden is president. So yes, to make it to make it long, long story short, I am worried about the future. There's this intense insecurity that seems to drive i mean to me it seems like a completely unnecessary step the bipartisan support is is there i i don't see that changing anytime soon you know the mood may change and the 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 praise may be less effusive but that's you know that's getting in bed with some really unsavory characters to save a relationship that isn't i know in trouble i know but but like i told you john in, in, in a different reference a few moments ago, um, if there is a change in government in Israel, less so in the U.S., but, but, but if there's a change of government in Israel, I think this could be rectified and readjusted and, and put back on its track. I'm not saying it's right. going to happen uh, overnight, and I'm not saying um, um, you know efforts on both sides uh, don't need to be made. Uh, but a change of government is not just a change of tone. It's also a change of, of, of substance. I'm frequently saying the same thing about our status here. So 
I, I, I agree, but it's not my place to say so. I'm thrilled that you spoke so, um, you know, so openly and directly about that. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you here uh, on the show is, you know, I've watched uh, many of your other talks and, and read your writing and the clarity of it is, you know, really refreshing to me, especially when this is so complex and it's very difficult to have this discussion, right? It's, it's when you wait, wait, well, it depends with <laughs> well, yeah, but <laughs> you, know, it, 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 you, you know, this, uh, as well as I do, there are two extremes. Either you're speaking in a, uh, echo chamber right. in which everyone nods and tells you how great you are, or you're speaking to a group that, 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 you know, that phones and looks at you, uh, with, with hostility and anger. Um, um, after your second sentence, and there's no way to get through to them. Right. Uh, but in between, in between the echo chamber and the um, uh, the resentful and, and, and hostile audience, eighty percent of the people live, and you got to reach those eighty percent. And those eighty percent, I'd like to think, feel along the lines of what you and I have been talking about. Well, that is uh, that's who we're targeting here, and have always targeted. Yep. You know, you you brought up an interesting point. Um, I mean, really fascinating to me. And it's something that I thought about not as deeply as you have. In one talk that I watched, you walked back through multiple presidents, I think back to Nixon and talked about the perception of whether they were pro Israel or not. And how often that is disconnected from like actual, actual action and policy. Yes. And, And that, that happens in both camps. That happens, uh, the United States suffers, you know, citizens suffer from that disconnect in, in, in perception. And, and it obviously is even more profoundly felt, I think, in Israel. Yeah. Look, let's start with the premise. Uh, the premise of, uh, you know, the, 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 the basic question, the premise on which all this is uh, based on. Uh, who is good for Israel? Begs the, the, the follow-up question, uh, what do you mean good for Israel? <laughs> Is it good for an annexationist Israel, or is it good for a peace process Israel? Is it good for a dovish Israel, or good for a hawkish Israel? Is it good for for my Israel, or Mr. Netanyahu? And and you know, once you understand the um, uh, the illegitimacy or the the silliness, I'm sorry for the term of of the question, um, and you say, okay, fine, dispense with the silliness and dispense with the illegitimacy of the question. Just tell me. Who do you think was the most friendliest president of Israel? You take 100 Israelis in one room, you take 100 Americans in, in another room, and you ask them. You're going to get questions that are, that are quite detached uh, from reality. Because how do you measure it? If you measure it by statements, then then uh, Donald Trump has been very friendly to Israel, if, according to most Israelis. They love it. If you measure it by material help when it mattered, $38 billion over 10 years, um, uh, supplemental budget to to uh, uh, further develop anti-missile missiles, the Iron Dome, for example. Then no president has been more friendly friendlier to Israel than than Barack Obama. If you measure it by emotions and sentiments and true love for Israel, then no one has been a better friend than Bill Clinton. But if you measure it in in terms of uh, who saved Israel when our ass was on fire, in the expression than Richard Nixon was in, in 1973 and during and in the aftermath of the Yom Kippur War uh, that, that uh, took place in October of 1973. So you get you get all these different 
uh, um, answers if you ask people. Um, a lot of a lot of people didn't like Obama for whatever reasons. A lot of, a lot of people don't like Trump for whatever reasons. Most people do not remember uh, um, Richard Nixon, and a lot of, of the, the, the younger uh, uh, people uh, don't really recall what Bill Clinton was all about. Um, but you get you, it, it changed. But if I had to measure this or quantify this, John, uh, according to who helped Israel when it needed it most, when it was absolutely against the wall and needed a lot of help. I think the two presidents historically uh, stand out. Richard Nixon in 1973 and Barack Obama in, in 2015 and 16. Yes, Bill Clinton was friendly. Yes, George W. Bush was friendly. Um, yes, Gerald Ford was friendly. Um, and yes, Jimmy Carter helped negotiate the peace with Egypt. And without Jimmy Carter, we wouldn't have that. But if, if you quantify it, uh, the two outstanding would be Richard Nixon and Barack Obama. Yeah, and if you if you polled the entire population oh, of both countries. Polled, oh, <laughs> <laughs> you polled 100 Israelis, they'll tell you that, that, you're, that you're a lunatic. Yeah. And, and, and as for American Jews, uh, obviously that depends where you poll them. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, you poll them in Brooklyn, you'll get one answer. You, you poll them in San Francisco, you'll get another I think you agree there's really no imminent threat to the relationship and that seems unlikely to change but you know how do we how do we turn that and may, you know maybe the answer is just only change in government but whether we have moderate center left far right governments none of them seem to be able to get traction on actually sort of uh, advancing and making progress on on the core issues uh, you know the israeli palestinian conflict you know the re- the big problems so it's it's not just a change in government, right? We could change both of these governments on both sides right now. How do we yeah. how, how do uh, I ask you like the impossible well, question? How do yeah. we, how do we how do we make progress? Okay. Right. That, that's a great question that I'm dealing with um intellectually, academically, um journalistically and politically almost every day for the last several years. Uh to be fair, it's not only about Mr. Netanyahu and Mr. Trump. They epitomize, they, 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 they reflect or, or uh, radiate uh, 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 these problems, but they are not the cause. And here's the thing. There are several historic, historical, I'm sorry, trends that lead to this. Um, and again, without, you know, without being, without burdening our listeners and, and being too heavy on history, um, you need to look back and, and to look for the, for, the, um, for the foundations of this relationship. And even though we retroactively call ourselves allies because of shared values and biblical values and two um, immigrant-based societies in two countries that had a manifest destiny of sorts in terms of their future and, 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 and how they, they see it, and there was a similarity, the truth is, the very plain and the very earthly truth is that this was a... a, a an alliance or a cooperate, a, 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 um, a partnership that was, that was very, very indigenous to the Cold War. And when in 1992, 91, 92, the Soviet Union ceased to exist, this relationship needed to be revisited. But conveniently, both sides deferred that. It was Bill Clinton as president. It was Yitzhak Rabin, the lady Yitzhak Rabin as prime minister. And there was no reason to, to you know, to over-dramatize the, uh, the, the changes that need to be made. Everyone was happy with the, 
with how the relationship developed. And no one thought that the uh, the disintegration or the dissolution of the uh, Soviet Union necessitates a better look. And then came another thing, energy independence in America. You basically no longer need Middle East oil. That, that undercuts most of the interest, traditional interests that you had in the region. Thirdly, by, by, you know, by the, by the mid first decade of the 21st century, but when you were in Iraq and in Vietnam, I'm sorry, in Iraq and in Afghanistan, there was a disillusionment in America in terms of both foreign entanglement and the Arab world. Fourthly, you needed to pivot, you being America, you needed to pivot because circumstances required, uh, to East Asia, to the, to the emerging Chinese uh, uh, um, issue or, or Chinese rivalry or Chinese challenge. So all of these lead to, you know, the no Soviet Union, no dependence on Arab oil, disillusionment with the Arab world, disillusionment with foreign entanglement, and the need to, to shift your priorities to the Far East have, uh, it began under Obama and under a different tone and music continued under Mr. Trump. This leads to a a gradual but very clear and unequivocal uh, disengagement of the U.S. from the Middle East. That leaves the relationship between Israel, the alliance between Israel and the U.S. very vulnerable. Add to that political changes inside the U.S., political changes inside Israel, um, a, a drifting apart between Israel and, and the vast majority of American Jews. Uh, the uh, the end, not not the terminal end, but the, the temporary end, the bipartisanship, and you have a relationship, you know, that the brochures that you get in in, in Jewish conferences uh, won't tell you. You get a relationship that is that is seriously in need of of uh, revisiting and, and 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 redefining. Is Israel able to advance um, and and make progress um, and? And it's unlikely to happen with the current government. So let's just sort of take the current reality off the table and, and move toward a um, things like a two-state solution uh, or advance advance these longstanding problems without um, without the U.S. being you know a major broker of that. Is that are they able to go go it alone at some point, uh, or will they have to? You no, think? not really. Yeah. I mean, look, every time people blame the U.S. Uh, for making mistakes in the Middle East, I get all upset and, and, and agitated, and I go on television or radio or podcasts like this, uh, like you and I having and saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Maybe the U.S. made mistakes. That's great. But the responsibility rests on Israel and the Palestinians. And the Palestinian reluctance or, or reticence or, or unwillingness to come to terms with reality has been uh, accompanying us uh, for the better part of the last 20 years. And in the last 10 years, Israel has uh, uh, um, demonstrated, unfortunately, the same kind of reluctance to come to uh, terms with the Palestinians. So so the idea that we need to do this without the U.S. is valid, but the practicality of it isn't. We can't come to terms, we can't agree with the Palestinians on, on a, an acceptable and implementable two-state model without U.S. mediation, without U.S. support. But I'll tell you more than that. It also requires U.S. credibility and leadership in the Arab world and a willingness of a, of a, a U.S. administration, be it Biden or a, a second Trump administration, for that matter, 
to seriously listen to out-of-the-box ideas about what to do here. Because if the two-state model is no longer implementable, viable, or, or feasible, and I'm willing to accept that, and if you agree that the one-state by national state model is absolutely uh, um, unacceptable and intolerable, uh, that's fine. But you need to come up to triangulate, uh, uh, so to speak. You need to come up with something else. And that something else has to be accepted by the U.S. For that to happen, you need the U.S. to have political, or diplomatic rather, clout in Europe, which it does not have now, and clout in the Arab world, which it does not have now. Uh, why it doesn't have those things? Well, that has to do with Trump's foreign policy, and I don't want to get into that. But it doesn't. Will the Biden administration uh, uh, regroup and 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 reclaim uh, uh, that clout and leadership? Maybe, hopefully. Um, but that's going to take time. And for that to happen, you can't go to the status quo ante. You can't. You can't pretend this is 2016 and this is the the, the second day of the post-Barack Obama presidency. It's not. There have been four years, things happened, things shifted. You need to, to, to somehow think or change the paradigm, change your, your, your parameters, change, you know, think out of the box, use all these cliches. Right. And so to answer your question, John, can we do this without the U.S.? Theoretically, yes. Practically, no. Yeah, and that's, that's troubling because uh, it seems unlikely that that sort of effort is on the near horizon, right? Assuming there is a change in power in November, or be January in the United States. Um, you know, the first thing that uh, uh, a Biden administration kicks off is not going to be uh, as new as really peace process, right? Uh, you know, I hope that uh, I can get you back here at some point and dig into uh, the, you know, the comments about um, the Cold War and, and your your view of sort of near history uh, I think is is really interesting, and there's a lot to bite off there. Um, yeah, definitely. It's, it's a completely different uh, podcast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, if not series and series of podcasts. Yeah, but you know, I think I think this is a good place to wrap it up. Without uh, we, you know, I could go on all day talking to you, but again, um, honored to have you on the show, and um, I My hope pleasure. we can do this again. Absolutely. Thank you, John. You have been listening to Covert Contact from Blogs of War. This podcast is produced, written, and hosted by John Little. Follow John on Twitter at Blogs of War and join the conversation with hashtag CCBOW. Thanks for listening.